Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Numbers, chapter 20, verses 14 to 21. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the adversity that has befallen us, how our ancestors went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians oppressed us and our ancestors. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Now let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will go along the king's highway not turning aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through or we will come out with a sword against you. The Israelites said to him, we will stay on the highway and if we drink of your water, we and our livestock, then we will pay for it. It is only a small matter, just let us pass through on foot. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large force, heavily armed. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through their territory. So Israel turned away from them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we do thank you for this feast day of all saints. We thank you for the baptisms that we just celebrated and for these two beautiful children you've now included in your family uh, and have marked as your own forever. What a joy and privilege it is to be here uh, for that. And we ask now that as we gather uh, and sit with your scriptures, that your spirit would be with us that you would be among us uh, at work in our hearts and our minds and our lives, drawing us toward yourself, stirring us up that we might want more of you, that we might get a glimpse of you and of ourselves, something about who you are or about who we are that we have previously missed. And would you kindle in our hearts uh, a fire of love for you? And would you shape us as a people who bear that love into your world and make us wise? We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. So as we've made our way through this series uh, on Numbers, the Wisdom and Wilderness series, we've continually come back to this question of what makes 
for a beautiful and compelling life in the sense of what characterizes it, like how would you describe it, and in the sense of what cultivates it. How does such a life grow? And what we've seen over and over and over again as we've worked our way through this story of Israel's wilderness wandering is we've seen wilderness is the context in which we may become wise. It is not a context that automatically makes us wise, but it is a context in which we may become wise because the wilderness, this place where things are threatening, this place where things are confusing, where uncertainty is the new normal, that is a place that strips away all of the things that we cling to instead of God. It's a place that strips away our illusions of control or self-sufficiency. And 2020, as a wilderness journey, just keeps stripping away, doesn't it? Uh, As the year continues, our wilderness journey keeps getting more complicated, more confounding, more wearying. Just this week, as we've already mentioned, our city witnessed a tragedy in the death of Walter Wallace Jr. at the hands of Philadelphia police. It's yet another black life lost unnecessarily at the hands of the police. Uh, And we've seen unrest and violence surging in our city as we wrestle with the realities of injustice, as we wrestle with the uncertainty and the anxieties that are spiking as election draws near, and that's only a couple of days away. Our city is hurting, and we're weary. We're on edge. And so the question is, how do we live into this wilderness moment? And who are we becoming as a people? How do we do this well? Are we becoming wise or are we becoming cynical? Are we becoming more humble or are we becoming more self-righteous? Are we becoming more open to God and others and open to seeing things about ourselves that we haven't seen before? Or are we closing ourselves off in self-protection and fear, giving ourselves over to all the name-calling and the finger-pointing that happens this time every year? The episode that we just read from Israel's wilderness story helps us reflect on how a practice of discernment specifically relates to our becoming wise. We've talked about many things that cultivate such a life of wisdom, right? One of those is a practice of discernment, and that's going to feature in this particular text quite prominently. You see, in this story from Numbers 20, Moses, the leader of Israel, he succumbs to the frustration and disappointment of life in the wilderness in such a way that he turns away from God. And he actually turns away from the the kind of discernment practice that God had actually instructed him to to practice, to do. Uh, And he chose instead to lean into his own ideas and agenda. And then as a result, what we see in the story is that things don't go well. But hopefully what we'll see today, this morning, as we look at this passage, as we consider it in light of the rest of the story of Israel, is not only the, the danger of trying to do life without God, right? but the startling perseverance of God to stick with his people so that in the end, his faithfulness actually wins out over our foolishness and failure. And I want us to think about this by looking really at two movements of the story that will help us see this this morning. The first is Moses's request, and the second is Edom's refusal. So the request, you can pretty much boil down this story to something like this, if you want to boil it down to plain speak. Israel says to Edom, hey, can we go through your land? And Edom says, no. And Israel says, seriously, it won't cost you anything, and we will even chip in. And Edom says, we said no. And they come out with troops, 
And so Israel goes away. I know what you're thinking. Where have these verses been all my life, right? This is inspiring stuff. I wish I'd brought my journal. What's going on? Look, the people of Israel, they're near Kadesh, which is near the border of Edom. And what they want to do is they want to get to the edge of the land of Canaan. It's where they've been trying to get to this whole time. And there's definitely one easy way to get from point A to point B. It's called the King's Highway, and it runs through the territory of Edom. So basically, if you, it's, the distance would be like trying to go from, uh, from D.C. to New York, right? Um, and so you, have to, you want to go on I-95, but if we were living in this old world to go through I-95, you would have to contact the rulers of Baltimore and Philadelphia and get permission and say, hey, we want to go this way because you really don't want to like have to go through Harrisburg on your way to New York, right? That's really out of the way. In this story, the King's Highway is just this obvious best way to go. And so what does Moses do? Well, at first glance, it looks like he does everything just right. Commentators note that Moses' request to Edom, it fits this classic form of diplomatic correspondence that you find in the ancient world. He says all the right things. It's actually an impressive piece of diplomacy, really, and Moses shows off some skill here, actually. He starts off by addressing Edom as brother, which is a typical way for allied nations to do that. Uh, it's also a more personal appeal to their shared ethnic heritage because the Israelites are the descendants of Jacob, the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, those were brothers, and the two nations are literally ethnic kin. And so Moses leads with that. But then he goes on to retell Israel's story of how the Lord delivered them from Egypt, seeking solidarity with Edom as these fellow Semites who now live in the shadow of a great and mighty Egypt. And he's sort of saying like, we need to stick together, brother. We're in this together. And he gives a bit of a sense of urgency. So he makes sure to emphasize that it won't cost them anything to let Israel pass through. He uses very formal, polite, respectful verbiage when he makes the request. It's textbook diplomacy. Moses could teach a class on this stuff. But here's the problem. This story in which Moses appears as a skilled expert in diplomacy is a story of failure. In doing everything right, Moses gets it all wrong. Why? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't actually matter how impressive Moses is as a diplomat. What matters is whether the Lord is leading him. And what we see here is that at the heart of Moses' request is his decision to navigate life in the wilderness without God. It's a failure of discernment. He's privileging best practices, according to his worldly wisdom, over the spiritual discernment that God had actually instructed him to follow. Do you remember the cloud of pillar, the pillar of cloud and, and fire, right, that would lead the people? And when it would go, they would go. And we talked about home is wherever the Lord is. And they would follow as the cloud would pick up, the people would pick up. As the cloud would set down, the people would set down. The whole wilderness journey was one of following the Lord whenever he prompted them to go. But that's not how Moses leads here. Here Moses leads with his expertise rather than with the humble prayer we have seen from him before. And he chooses to make his own way through the wilderness without God. And he essentially takes over the Lord's job of leading the people, which is where he fails. 
And so we've seen this pattern before in the story, the failure to trust the Lord, followed by God's words of judgment, followed by a failed mission. We saw it when the spies brought a bad report to the land, and here we're seeing it again. So Moses leads the people, but not at the Lord's command. And if you think about your own experience of this wilderness, right, as you think about the places where the uncertainties right now squeeze you and you kind of see what comes out of you, of your life, or you think about the things that cause you to be anxious uh, or frustrated, do you find yourself seeking the Lord's leading and presence, that the wilderness experience might do its work on you, so to speak, right? Do I do this? Or do we try to just take the rough edges off of the wilderness experience to get through this and get it over with as painlessly as possible? Moses is taking the easier way out. He's trying to mitigate some of the harder features of wilderness journey, and he's taking it into his own hands to lean into his own expertise, his own agenda, or as the prayer book says, to live by the light of his own eyes as faithless and not believing. I do this, you do this, we all do this. The point in the story is that's actually not what wisdom looks like, right? That's leaning into our own abilities, not into the presence of God. And so when you think about your life, what are those places where you're most keenly aware of things are just not the way they ought to be right now? What are those places where you feel the wilderness terrain of your life most painfully? The stress, the weariness, the deep hurt, the frustration, the uncertainty, those places where the hardship and the tragedy press in and they threaten to press in on you. And when you find yourself there, what do you do? What do you double down on? Do you try to make your way out or do you turn to the Lord and seek his presence and guidance? If you're holding your bulletin or if you're looking there, if you, if you have a Bible, look at verse 16. It's the only place where the name of the Lord is even mentioned in this passage. But notice that Moses isn't crying out to the Lord at that moment. He's just name dropping. Moses is talking about the Lord without ever talking to him. And I don't know about you, but when I look at my own life in the wilderness moments, like Moses here, I am often, I am often likely to dip into my own talking about the Lord, the things I think I know, the insights I think I've gained, the books I've read, the conversations I've had. I lean into my own understanding, and I can so easily do that, talking about God rather than talking to God. And I think what's helpful for me, and maybe it's helpful for you, is to recognize that name dropping is not relationship. Talking about God is not the same as talking to God. It's a life without God masquerading as life with God. And it's in the end really just about my own agenda. And in the end, it's really powerless. Well, here in our text, Moses gets caught, he gets caught up in his own agenda. He gets caught up in finding his own way out of the wilderness. And he just leads his people and himself deeper and deeper into it. And really at the heart of that failure is his choice to navigate life without God. So that's Moses' request. Let's look at Edom's refusal. What's going on here? A couple important things, I think. One, Edom shows a complete unwillingness to partner with Israel. In fact, a, a commitment to stand against them. 
And this commitment is going to carry forward into future generations so much that Edom will actually become sort of the poster nation for opponents to God's mission of establishing God's kingdom on earth. And even though Moses was leading the people without the Lord's guidance, Edom's refusal of Israel's passage is still understood in the scriptures as Edom's resistance and opposition to the Lord. Because in Edom's day, you see, God's promise was attached to this nation of Israel. And so to oppose Israel was to oppose God's mission of blessing the whole world through this nation. And so just as it is Moses' agenda, not God's, that drives the request, it's Edom's agenda, not God's, that drives the refusal. And this encounter between Israel and Edom, uh, which provides an important piece of the story, is this backstory of rivalry between these two nations. Uh, And it goes basically like this. Um, Jacob and Esau, the namesakes, patriarchs of these two nations, they meet in Genesis 32 and 33. And that's the last meeting, actually, between these two groups until the story that we see here. And as we've already noted, the Israelites, they're the descendants of Jacob, right? Edomites are the descendants of Jacob's twin brother Esau. And in Genesis, when we see Jacob heading toward the land of Canaan, after living in a foreign land, he comes upon this territory of Esau, or Edom, and Jacob sends a message asking for safe passage for his family and livestock. Sounds familiar. And Jacob's super nervous because back in the day he had cheated his brother out of his inheritance and he's afraid that Esau might still be upset about that. And then Esau comes with 400 troops to meet Jacob. But in that story, the two brothers embrace. Esau even offers to partner with Jacob to join forces, but Jacob is the one who refuses. And so they go their separate ways. And that's the last encounter between these two brothers until their descendants meet here several hundred years later. And so now when Israel shows up at Edom's border, Edom remembers the past and they're like, yeah, we're not negotiating with you. You burn that bridge. And that's sort of a complicated thing, right? Because on one hand, we understand that history matters. The story matters. And we know from our own experience that years of hurt and rejection in a relationship are not overcome in a day. Centuries of injustice and relational rift and oppression of people are not overcome in a year or even a decade. When you've burned your bridges, you can't just show up one day and expect things to be okay because rebuilding takes a long time. It can take generations because we're connected to those who've come before us for better and for worse. And so on one hand, Edom's response to Israel makes sense. We get it. But on the other hand, As we've already said, the promise of God is attached to this nation of Israel in this story, despite their checkered past. And when Edom drives a wedge between themselves and Israel, they drive a wedge between themselves and God. And it's the same kind of danger that can arise in our own lives and in the church. When we hurt one another, we're tempted to move away, right? We're tempted to point the finger and say, shame on you, not on me. We drive wedges. And when we do that, we isolate ourselves from the very places where we experience the blessing of God most powerfully. This community of the church, the communion of saints that we celebrate on this feast day. It makes sense on one level that we would retreat into the rift rather than pursue repair. But it often ends up causing more harm 
in the long run. Here in our story, both Israel and Edom are at fault in their own way and they both end up paying a price. And in both cases, we see the disastrous consequences of choosing life without God over life with God. And so immediately after Israel turns away from Edom and travels another way, the very next scene is the death of Aaron. One of the heroes of the story, right? Israel's first high priest. Aaron's taken up a mountain. He's stripped of his priestly robes. He dies in the wilderness. He never goes into the land. And soon after that, a similar fate is going to fall on Moses. He too will go up a mountain and he too will die outside the land. And that ends up being the tragic cost of their failure, of their decision to turn away from God. But for Edom, it's even more severe because the prophet Amos actually writes this of Edom, that I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. And so the story takes a really dark turn. It's shrouded in death. But the thing we really need to recognize as we keep reading the story forward is that Israel's experience of refusal in the wilderness is not a sign of God's refusal to make good on his promise. Israel's experience of refusal in the wilderness is a real hardship. It is suffering. And in their case, it's a hardship that's partly their own fault, their own making. But it's also partly that of those who rejected them. You know, in our own lives, sometimes when we experience refusal, we can like we mess things up, right? We know what it's like to make our own bed and have to lie in it. We know what it's like to fail and see rifts come out of our own failure. And we also know what it's like to suffer at the hands of others, right? In ways that aren't our fault at all. Disappointments and hardships that we didn't cause. Refusals that are different from the kind we see in this story. And I think this text really does have something to say about those moments as well, because it pushes us to ask the question, how do we interpret those experiences of rejection? when we're in the midst of them, and what will we do with them? Will we interpret our suffering through the lens of our relationship with a God who loves us and sticks with us? Or will we understand it in terms of our own personal agendas for our lives? The hope that we see in a passage like this is not that we might be somehow lifted out of the wilderness quickly and painlessly, but that God is with us in it committed to moving us forward even when we feel stuck and transforming us through it. And the relationship changes everything, even the way we experience frustration and heartbreak. If we read the rest of Israel's story, we see that really the only refusal we ultimately receive from God is his refusal to leave us alone in the mess we've made. He just keeps coming after his beloved. And where we see this with astonishing clarity is when God keeps moving the story forward and he comes himself all the way down to meet us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus, when we meet him in the New Testament and the gospels, what we see is Jesus is God with us in the wilderness. Jesus is God sticking with us. Jesus is also us sticking with God because he's the human being who actually holds on by faith and chooses life with God every time. He's the one who pioneers that way through the wilderness of trusting God. And he's the one that says, come with me, follow me. I'm blazing the trail and I'm walking with you in it. One of the first things we see about Jesus in the gospels is that he has to go into the wilderness and he's there for 40 days without food. He experiences incredible hardship and the anguish of knowing that tragedy could come upon him at any moment yet he never succumbs to the temptation to turn away from God. And we see about Jesus in those moments is it is always life with God. 
not life without God. It is always the presence of God that sustains him, the spirit who leads him, the discerning of what God is doing. I love the story of Jesus and Jairus when they're walking through and Jairus comes and falls down at Jesus' feet and he's, his daughter is on the brink of death and he says, you have to come with me, save my daughter. And they're making a beeline for his house. They're in an emergency mode. And all of a sudden on the way, Jesus feels that someone has touched his garments and power has gone out from him. And what does Jesus do? He stops. In the middle of the emergency, where the agenda is strikingly clear what needs to be done, Jesus stops because he discerns. God is doing something in his midst. He's that present that he can even pick up on God's surprising activity in the midst of an emergency. And the, the, the healing story that was about to unfold becomes a double healing story as Jesus attends to what God is doing in his midst. Jesus is the one who models for us discernment. He's the one who models for us trusting God. And he's the one who models for us not only what humanity looks like, but what God is like and this love that God extends to us and sticks with us. Ruth Haley Barton, as she talks about the practice of discernment and what it looks like for us to become a people who are wise, a people who seek God in our wilderness experience. She describes discernment as something that involves both our attention and our intention our attention to God's presence, our intention to seek God's will. And she says that there are three foundational beliefs that we need to practice that kind of discernment. One is that God is good and trustworthy. The second is that our love, love is our primary calling more than anything else, more than success, more than survival. And then the third thing is that God, the Holy Spirit is alive and working in us to help us know what love requires of us in our various situations. And that's the practice of discernment, she says, as it begins from those places of trusting God's goodness, of seeing love as our primary calling and believing that God the Spirit is actually animating us and leading us into a life of love. And she says, when, you're, when you have those foundational beliefs, you can then begin to take up the prayer for indifference. Not indifference in the sense of not caring what happens, but indifference in the sense of, I surrender my will to the will of God. Not my will, but your will be done. This is the heart of what it looks like to become wise in the wilderness, is to meet this God, to follow this God, to seek to know this God. And rather than to lean into our own expertise or our agenda or our desire to make the pain stop now, to lean into the one who sticks with us, who meets us in our wilderness, and who loves us through it until he is making all things new. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.